Shabbat Shalom. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my colleagues and I are in our favorite place, the Gan Chapel. We are taping this podcast on Wednesday, January the 24th, and it is being shown on Shabbat Shira, the Sabbath of song, which is actually very helpful because it's a, a good point of departure. Shabbat Shira celebrates something that is very rare in our world in general and has been extremely rare and in fact not present at all in the Jewish world since October 7th. Shabbat Shira celebrates not just victory, but it celebrates total and complete victory. It celebrates crisp, irrefutable victory. Shabbat Shira celebrates the fact that the Egyptians, after 430 years, are finally and fully vanquished. The Israelites, I see them on the other side, they're on the other side of the Sea of Reeds, and they see their tormentors and their captors dead, and they say, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And their version of that is the Shira. And so, in fact, at Shul, this Shabbat, there's going to be extra song. And the question is, what do we do with that notion of total and complete victory, and therefore the rapture that flows from that? Um, I, what comes up for me in my sick mind is the Patriots' first Super Bowl, uh, when they beat the St. Louis Rams, and Tom Brady was a rookie quarterback, uh, and, and came back in the last end of the game, and Adam Vinatieri kicks the 48-yard field goal, and they win, and it's crisp and decisive, and the confetti falls. And that moment, which was a New England moment, um, and, and Robert said, we're all Patriots now, that moment, total victory, is so rare, and it's enshrined in our Siddur. Uh, we say the Shira not only on Shabbos, but we say it uh, in our daily Siddur. And in fact, the version that was sent out to you is page 27 of our daily Siddur. We say it every day, but it's so rare. And what I want us to think about is that model versus the Dayenu model, um, where we don't have total and complete victory. What we have is very partial. What we have is very incomplete. What we have is very much uh, not the full picture, and yet somehow we are grateful for it anyway. And I'm going to talk about these two models, total victory, Shira, and partial incomplete victory, Dayenu, uh, as it applies to our lives and as it applies to Israel. So let's thank God for the gift of learning Torah together. Asher kitshanu mitzotav etzivanu la'asok v'divrei Torah. V'ha'arevna adonai Eloheinu et divrei Toratcha v'finu u'v'fi amcha v'Yisrael. V'nigya anachnu v'tzatzeinu v'tzatzei amcha v'Yisrael. Kulani yodei shemecha v'lomdei Toratzecha l'ishma. V'oruch atah adonai ha'mlamei Torah la'amo Yisrael. V'oruch atah adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam. Asher b'chazanu l'kol ha'amim v'natamanu et torato v'roch atanoi milchirin ha'torato. Before we get uh, to Israel, which obviously is uh, is the important area where this is felt so deeply, I just want to talk to us about how our own attitudes about how we go through life, what our own expectations are, and uh, how we raise our kids, and. Um, my point of departure is I just remember so clearly and vividly my mother, my late mother, uh, would always say one of her signature pieces of wisdom is lower your expectations. Because if you go through life with Dayenu expectations, 
then you'll be pleasantly surprised. If you go through life with Shira expectations, total clear, crisp victory, Adam Vinatieri kicking the 48-yard field goal as time expires and you win the Super Bowl, if that's your expectation, you're likely to be disappointed. Therefore, go through life with lower expectations to be pleasantly surprised. When you think about your own lives and when you think about how you educate your kids, how do you think about and the Dayenu model and what lives for you? Well, for myself, uh, there are certain aspects of my life in which I will not accept mediocrity and I will not accept lower um, expectations. Like, like when I read Torah, if I make a mistake, I, specific, I, I, just, I just can't let it go for like sometimes days at a time, months at a time. So there are certain parts of, of what I do that I just uh, I can't have a lowered expectation. On the other hand, uh, it's also a complex model, you know, raising our children, especially when our children go to um, public schools or, or uh, private schools or day schools, in which um, mediocrity is not accepted as part of the norm that it's so hard to tell our kids, oh my God, you know, you only got an A minus, that's wh what happened, versus um, that's unbelievable. You got the B plus, you got an A minus, that's fabulous, great work. Um, and and how, do we, how do we then, you know, um, try to create that balance of models where in our own lives we have certain um, raised expectations, but in some ways we lower expectations so that our kids will become successful and, um, and, and more grounded uh, otherwise, it, it just gets too hard for them moving on in life. Mm. So, it's interesting. My, my mom is really good at the Dayenu mindset. And she had, you know, my sister has, has been dealing with a chronic illness for 10 years now. And, and there were times where she was really struggling. And my mom was taking care of her and things were extremely hard. And my mom's Instagram and Facebook was full of pictures of like oil stains on the cement. My mom would find an oil stain at the gas station that looked to her like a heart and she would be like, oh my God, look at this. And she would send us pictures or clouds that reminded her of a heart or a sunset. And she is always in this, she's always able to be in this, oh my God, thank you God mindset. And it's something I deeply admire about her. I, I have not mustered that strength in my own spiritual practice. I'm much more in the despair when when especially when there's something that i really desperately yearn for i much more often inhabit a, a place of despair and sadness that it isn't mm. with me than a space of dying for all the good that is and it's definitely much of my spiritual work is trying to emulate more of my mom and more of that dying perspective because i don't know i mean it, it is what has kept her strong through so much loss and so much intensity and so much challenge is the ability to like literally a stain on the ground and some of the times they don't even really look like hearts it's like you really have to focus <laughs> to see yeah. it but for her that's that's transformational yeah at least I, I was wondering if you could um uh, read on page four there's something that kind of summons to me what what you just talked about with regards to your mom this is that in, in Dayenu, there's of course a lot of lines which don't make any sense, that if you only done this and not that, that would have been enough. But one of them specifically is, if you had uh, taken us to the Sea of Reeds, but not through the Sea of Reeds, that would have been enough. Um, or if you had taken us through the Sea of Reeds and let the Egyptians uh, come to and not drown them on dry ground, that would have been enough. And this is the Hartman Haggadah, um, A Different Night, their take on that. And I'm wondering if you could read that and if we could react the wisdom here of that interpretation. 
Had God but split the sea and not passed us through it on dry land, it would have been enough. How could it have been enough? Had Israel not escaped through the Red Sea, they would have been slaughtered by the Egyptians. The point of the poem is to express gratitude for every facet of God's miraculous deliverance. There is a sense that the Exodus, which reached its fulfillment in the entry into the land and in the building of the temple, a process of over 400 years, unfolding in many steps, each constituting a miracle in itself. The poet feels the living power of each gesture of divine favor, irrespective of the total result. Had you only done this and no more, it would have been enough for me to feel your divine love. The principle of Dainu, of giving thanks even for the partial and incomplete, is crucial for living in this uncertain world in which few dreams ever come to total fruition. We thank God every day for the miracle of being alive. In learning gratitude to God, we also learn to show gratitude to parents, teachers, loved ones, and friends, even when their efforts fall short of completeness. So, hard to argue with that, but how does it land for you? For me, it lands, like, feels very aspirational. I would love to be in this mindset, and, um, and yes, there are moments that I can acknowledge the beauty of every, like, the individual steps and feel the, like, wow, it's such a blessing that we're, we're making this progress, and I think this is really hard. Yeah. Yeah, Elias and Michelle, how does this land for you? Um, so, my children would accuse me of being a Shehechiano addict. Um, you know, we, we have the opportunity to bless the moments that we're in, regardless of the moment that comes after, to try to hold on to it. And I see this with my clergy hat on often, um, unfortunately, at the times when people receive terminal, um, uh, I'm diagnosis. losing the, thank you, diagnosis. diagnosis. They yeah. receive a terminal diagnosis, and many people will respond with a, a kind of a, a dienu move. Um, and it's, it's counterintuitive because it, you have just lost so much of your hope in the future and your and your sense of the expectation of what is yet to come and and somehow we see all of us again and again with people in our community that each moment somehow then becomes that much more precious especially when they know that they're not going to be crossing that sea right. they're not getting to the other side and that's a move that has always i mean you spoke about your your aunt who who did that just so powerfully and so beautifully. I don't know where that comes from, um, but I know that it would be super helpful if we could cultivate it yeah. before we have a terminal since diagnosis. Since, I, since all of you are clergy and you know you, you both make your living and your soul is inclined to live with a daily prayer, you're, you're often just reciting the words, trying to inhabit the words of our daily liturgy. Um, I'm curious about this question. The Shirah, which is the crisp, clear, rare victory. Vinatieri kicking the field goal at just the right moment as time expires. It happens so seldom. It happens so seldom, if, if ever. Like that it really happens like, yes! Like how many yeses do, do any of us ever get? And that's in our daily liturgy. Dayenu, 
which is the incomplete partial victory, the schlep along, the it's not ideal, but it is what it is. That's the Seder. So in Israel, it's once a year. In America, it's twice a year. Can you just think out loud with me about why is it the clear, crisp, yes, victory that never happens or seldom happens is in the liturgy every day? And the more sober, more realistic, more it is what it is, is not part of our daily liturgy at all. It's part, it's once a year, it's twice a year. How do you think about that? To me, it makes sense. It's, it's that we live Dainu, and so we don't need a reminder that that's a reality. But we don't live Shiratayam. We don't live that crisp victory as you're describing it. So we do need a daily reminder that it's possible. So it's, it's the glimmer that keeps us going. Okay. So I want to I wanna just pivot for a minute to what got me thinking deeply about Dayenu. Well, there's still snow on the ground. Um, and, uh, and the Shira is the, the podcast that Daniel and Yossi Klein Halevi did from last Wednesday. We're in basically, Daniel says, hey, listen, Jewish world, something major is happening in Israel. It's like the most major and it's the most big and nobody is talking about it. And if you listen to the podcast, what it is is that Israel went into the war with the goal of crushing Hamas, destroying Hamas, defeating Hamas. They point out in that podcast that more than more than 90% of Israeli Jews were with that program. More than 90% of Israeli Jews said, take our son, take our daughter, take our husband, take our wife, take our family, put them in Gaza, just so long as October 7th never, ever happens again. Crush Hamas. More than 90%. And, and now, 100 plus days later, uh, Hamas is not crushed. And in many ways, even though this week was horrible, uh, 21 soldiers died this week, the worst day ever in the October 7th war. Um, but still, uh, Israel is, is scaling back. Uh, it's still fatal and lethal, but scaling back the military operations. And it's pretty clear to all that Israel is not has not crushed Hamas, and the Hamas is still, sadly, very much there with all of its genocidal menace. And in this uh, podcast, Daniel says we need to reinterpret Zionism from what he calls Messianic Zionism, which is we just solved the problem. And his example is Entebbe. There were Jewish hostages. Okay, there's Jewish hostages. We'll fly across the world from Israel to Entebbe. We'll land will miraculously save all of our hostages, will bring them back. Of course, Yoni Netanyahu perished, but otherwise everybody's safe and sound, no other casualties, and it's resolved in a matter of days, and it's done, versus where we are now, hostages schlepping on so tragically forever. And he says, Messianic Zionism is done. We now need Dayenu Zionism. We need to be okay with what is, even though what is is very partial, very incomplete. And if you've heard the podcast, Yossi Klan Halevi says, Daniel, you're eloquent, but I couldn't disagree with you more because right now the North is uninhabitable because of Hezbollah and the South is uninhabitable because of Hamas. And you have hundreds of thousands of displaced Israeli refugees. Your Dayenu Zionism means Israel is not viable. We must crush Hamas. And that unresolved tension is kind of left in the podcast. How did their discussion of Dayenu Zionism, given the reality that Hamas is not crushed, 
Uh, how did that sit with you? It's a, it's a yes and no. Um, like Elias was saying that he saw the, the podcast from this morning. Uh, but Dan, let's just talk about so last week. Cause most I didn't see it. I heard yes. it. I heard it, yes. yes. But, um, we're, we're focused so on last week. Yes. So, yes. So, so yeah, I say yes and no because um, in order for in order for, uh, for Israel to survive, we have to have partners. And our part, if our partners, that is, you know, um, uh, the Palestinian people, um, all the other countries around, if they are not willing to be our partners, then Israel won't survive. So, yes, Dayenu, that, we, that maybe that we cannot crush Hamas. But on the other hand, we, uh, as Lisa, Lisa just said, we need to have that glimmer um, a glimmer of hope that uh, that that uh, that we can find partners that will not spend their entire um, f financial structure and their entire educational structure for the purpose of destroying Israel. So it's yes and no. It, and, and living uh, living on the on the on the a metaphor that you've used before. So going back to what you asked at the very beginning, not all of us had a chance to say. I tend to be a Dayenu person, um, more than ever now. Perhaps I wasn't 20 years ago, because when you are in your 30s, you want it at all. And there are certain things you cannot control, so you have to, to let them go. But it's a Dayenu, because there are some things you can do on yourself and you know try to improve professional way. We all try to do that, but there are some other things, external things that happen to you that you cannot control. So you have to be the aim. In the case of Israel, I believe that it was a messianic idea, false messianic idea. It's like uh, the false messiah, all right? It's because, in a way, Israel got spoiled. You know, you think about 67, 73, those were decisive battles that in 10 days were resolved, and Israel was victory, and that was a Shiratayam moment. But now, I mean, it's from the moment that they decided to go in the ground in Gaza with the tunnels and all these different things and the hostages, it wasn't a messianic idea. I mean, everybody was in support that they, they had to do something. Um, so with me, I always resonate much more now, especially these days with Dayenu and the reality of Israel. And let's think, let's be realistic. Even in 48, when Israel was created, four years before was the Holocaust. It was horrible. It wasn't a, a Shirat Ayan, it was a Dayenu. Yeah. So, Elias, so you're a Dayenu person. Jewish history at best is Dayenu, right? Uh, that even our best moments, like 48, came on the heels of 41 through 45. So how do you, as a Chazan, ha like, what's your kavana? What's your interior life? What's your intention when we do the Shirah? When we think about Kriyat Yamsuf, which is just so unrepeatable, uh, why do we make such a simas of something that is so unrepeatable? It's funny that you mentioned this, because although it's in our daily liturgy, we barely sing it. We don't sing it. We only sing it out loud during Shabbat Shirah or during Pesach. It's there. We do it mostly silently, as you know from daily minyan. And on Shabbat, we skip it. Right. We go from Hallelujah to Nishmat. So it's interesting why it's there. We can, we can say that it's there maybe as a utopian you know idea this this oh my god but how let like me just we ground can the hope for this only yeah hope let, for this. let me ground the question you're leading you and lisa are leading shabbat shirah services this coming sabbath um where it's day 100 plus of the war 
and where it's the bloodiest week of the war, the most fallen IDF soldiers in, since the war. How does the joy of Shabbat Shira intersect with the sober reality of this war 100 plus days later for you? How, just talk about the, rea the, the relationship between song and festive and ongoing war. I mean, definitely, the Shabbat Shira will be, the music that we are going to be doing in the service will be re a reflection of that. It's, I, I decided to do Israeli music because there is nothing else you can think about it these days. Uh, but it's not a happy, clappy Shabbat. It won't be. I also, it feels important to contextualize our connection with Shirat Hayam with the people that lived it because I'm not sure that they would have felt that they were living a decisive victory moment because they lost their homes and they lost their friends and they lost their communities and they lost the world that they had known and yes it was a world of slavery but they didn't get to see their you know they didn't get to live in the United States and have it be a beautiful place and have their lives be redeemed there and so yes they get to you know they get to leave everything they've known but they don't they don't get the life that necessarily they wanted to have and so it's it's a really interesting moment that even those decisive victories are mixed bags often and this comes with loss and this comes with intensity and it's it's not a clear it's not clear to them even when they're leaving that like they're getting to a good place they are they're stranded in the desert for so long and and that leads directly into the rest of the parsha right which does not end <coughs> with the shira moment but right. instead ends with kvetching right. and concern Harold right? Kushner says, how long is the afterglow <laughs> of a good thing? 72 hours. Right. Three days. And, and, and then they're complaining 72 days, 72 hours later. Yeah, and, and, and there's reality to that. And not to sound Haredi, but one of, uh, there's something a little off about this paradigm of, you know, should you be Shirat Hayam Zionists or, or Dayenu Zionists in that the, even the Shirat Hayam is really about God's redemption, not about our own decisive victory. So it's, it, it's a little bit of an ill match because if you are going in expecting that we are going to entirely destroy Hamas, right. you, you kind of are missing the point of the Shirat Hayam, which puts God in that place of redemption. Well, um, well, and we could, in we the could, Dayenu. We could argue with that because <laughs> When Moses cries out to God, save us, go God forward. says, go forward. Stop right. talking to me and act. Yes, yeah. yes, and, right? So th that's, one of the, that's one of the ancient, <laughs> not ancient, that's one of the old challenges of Zionism, right? right? Is, is that tension between how long do we wait, how much do we move right. forward? And, and yet there is a gloss about the Shirat Hayam that there's something sort of miraculous and, and redemptive, and so too in the Dayenu, Right, the Dayenu is fundamentally, it's, it's beautiful for somebody to appreciate life along the way, but it, it doesn't work. It, it, it is not actually Dayenu, and therefore, right, you, you, it's uninhabitable in Israel if you don't defend. Right. So, so I think both of those kind of may not be our only models. And, and I've been thinking a lot as you've been talking about the question of... <coughs> what's the midpoint between those those two things and to me it seems like that might be breweria zionism right where breweria says to rabbi mayer famously rabbi mayer prays to kill the sinners right that the sinners should die and breweria says don't pray against the sinners that the sinners should die but rather that the sin right maybe there's a zionism that works to think out of the box 
about ways that we can change culture, that can have partnerships. I mean, Elias yeah. was speaking as we walked in right. about different moves that are happening in the Middle East, trying to leverage some relationships beyond Israel to build the possibility of containing Hamas. Yeah, so um, I'll just say I was just, I had two words percolating in my head as you were you know, spinning out a beautiful vision, which I would just so love, and I would so love a world where a beautiful vision could take place. The words I was thinking of were Alain Trowen. Alain Trowen, the Brandeis professor, who's going to be here at the synagogue on, I think, March 6th, but check their details. Um, Alain Trowen's daughter, highly idealistic, married a husband, highly idealistic. They live down south, highly idealistic. They're going to bridge builds. They're going to change the world. They're going to create partnerships with Palestinians. And they were slaughtered by Hamas on October 7th in the presence of their 16-year-old son. So it feels like what often happens to very idealistic and naive Jews is they die. Um, so here's, um, but if we don't have that dream, then what, is, what well, happens to us? Right, a right, and you ask the question if you're facing an impossible task, right? right? Complete and utter destruction right. is impossible. Okay, so then what? Then what, yeah. So, so then what? So I want to close by, by sharing with you uh, what Daniel Hartman shared in the podcast, and it's also it's in the it's in the packet. But he quotes this as one of his father, David Hartman, may he rest in peace. Most important teachings. Um, this is just in the DNA of his family, as he shared it in his podcast. That Deuteronomy says, uh, "You should eat, you should be satisfied, and then you bless." and thank God. You don't burp, belch, and leave. You say, wow, God, thank you for this meal. And the Talmud asked the question, how much do you have to eat to trigger that obligation? That, by the way, is the basis for Birkat Hamazon, the grace after meals. How much do you have to eat? And the answer is, in the Talmud, um, two answers are given. Uh, kabetza, you have to eat an egg's worth, or kazayat, an olive's worth. In other words, a very small amount, even one olive triggers the obligation to uh, to thank God. This is Dayenu incarnate. This is saying that even an olive is, we wouldn't think an olive is a full meal, it's a partial and incomplete meal, but an olive, an egg, I'll thank God for that. And Daniel says that kind of lowered expectation is, in his mind, core to the Jewish people and to Jewish values. So I want to end with just a, a, a wraparound what for you is the resonance of this teaching uh, that, that was so important to the Hartman family, that even an olive triggers the obligation to be grateful? Um, and is that, is that a teaching that you personally can or do live out? And is that a teaching that calls to the Jewish people now? And if so, how? Um. On a, on a side note, before I answer the question, um, I was going over the, part, the, the booklet that we put together, and at the end of it, as I was reading, a smile put in my face, or uh, yeah, a smile. And why? Because it brought me back to my years in Argentina when I used to do weddings. Every single wedding, Jewish wedding in Argentina, ends with two things. Psalm 128, that you included here, and with the Pirkei Avot part, Ezeu Ashir, Asameach Bechelko, even in the times 
when you are, I mean, when can you be happier than when you are getting married? Perhaps that's one of the most beautiful days in your life, right? And that could be the Shirataya moment that you brought. And even in that moment, you have to know that, you know, you have to be happy with whatever you get and, and be happy, content with what you have. And, and the Psalm 128 saying, you know, may you see your children's children and the peace over Israel. It's like, that's our hope. There are two things we can ask for, we cannot ask for more. And uh, so it's so beautiful. Thank you for including that. It brought me back to my, my years in Argentina. But definitely the, the Zeit, the olive. Yes, that is my, my take. And you try to live that. Eliza? I love it, and it's definitely a work in progress for me. Mm. Mr. Lord Nesson. Uh, yeah, um, it's such a hard question, um, which I haven't actually had a chance to process, but I think I'm more with Elias in the sense that, um, you know, that, uh, that as, I, as I get older, I'm actually more easily satisfied with what I have as opposed to, um, pushing for more and uh, but in terms of how this relates to the Israel conversation um, it's just, it, again it's just we have these such such, such variant um, uh, ch uh, opportunities in our in our in our Talmud like we have um, you know we have um, uh, Rabbi Gamzu right everything is everything is for the best right uh, versus the idea that um, that 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 we that we have to strive to make everything perfect, and that again trying to find that balance is probably just what life is all about. But in terms of the history of the Jewish people, uh, it's it, it never we never really can f strike that balance, and how to how to find how to strike that balance. Mm. Michelle, um, yes, to Kazait, right? Oh my gosh, Elias, so gorgeous so gorgeous and you have to have the zeit you ha you have to have the meal to bless over you have to have something that you can see and preserve that is going to be the foundation for your prayers and so you know my prayer for israel is that our um, beloved homeland will find some way to strike that balance between Shirat Hayam and Dainu and find its way forward out of this really tragic and horrible moment. Yeah, amen to that. I, I found that that podcast about Dainu Judaism, and I found reflecting on the difference between Dainu and Shirat Hayam um, uniquely challenging, because usually we're trained to say yes and. Are human beings valuable or not? Well we're not valuable at all, we're dust and ashes. No, 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 we're, we're made in the image of God, we're infinitely valuable, and the answer is both. Yes, we're dust and ashes, and we're infinitely valuable, we're made in God's image, and, and we hold the tension, both. Um, I found this issue uniquely hard, because it's very hard for me to see how you can seriously, if you take them seriously, seriously affirm both at the same time. Right? If, let's take the innocuous example, the olive. Can you really be satisfied with an olive? I, I love the idea of really being satisfied with an olive. But I know myself, I wouldn't be really satisfied with an olive. I would say, where's the rest of my meal? 
right? And maybe I could say, maybe I could be happy with an olive for a meal or for a moment, uh, but I certainly couldn't be happy with an olive for a day or for two days or for a week or for a month. Um, I would be like those Israelites, moaning and groaning and complaining and lamenting. And so it, the teaching is beautiful and utterly not real. It's beautiful and utterly not real. And Diana Judaism, I found myself, of course I love Daniel, he's my rabbi, but I found myself totally agreeing with Yossi Klein Halevi. Um, uh, if if, if Dayenu Zionism means that the North and South are uninhabitable, that doesn't work. So um, I don't have the answer other than uh, come to Shul and pray, go to Israel next in the next couple of weeks and do our thing. But I, I just want to note, this is, this is a problem without a clear answer. And this is a tension that, I love tensions that can be resolved or tensions where you can live in creative tension. This one is just uh, one without end. I'll just close with, to me, it is a, a private moment, but it kind of takes in the impossible challenge of this moment. Yesterday was Elias's birthday, January 23rd. Yesterday was my wife Shira's birthday, January 23rd. We were on a Zoom. Our kids all live out of state, so we were on a, a FaceTime at the end of the night with Nad and Davide uh, in San Francisco, in, in Oakland, and Jordy in San Francisco, and Sam and Josh in Brooklyn. And before we got into the conversation about Shira, we were talking about the world and life, and of course Israel, because we have a lot of family in Israel. And of course, you couldn't talk about that without talking about the fact that. 21 soldiers at least had perished, and it was the bloodiest day of the war. And then we all just kind of said, wow, how do we go from that to a birthday conversation? How do we go from that to what do we love about our mother? And I find that impossible disjuncture is our existence every day. Um, so without a bow, we say to you, Shabbat Shalom, and I hope you'll come to Shabbat Shirah, because there they will be singing the songs of Israel that speak to this moment. Shabbat Shalom.